Welcome to this edition of the Mission Bitcoin Podcast. On today's episode, we talk with Jimmy Song, a Bitcoin core contributor and former VP of engineering for Armory. He caught the Bitcoin bug back in 2011 and has contributed to Bitcoin open source projects since 2013. He's a contributor to Coindesk and has a popular Bitcoin blog. Jimmy hosts the Bitcoin Fixes This podcast. He's been teaching blockchain to engineers for over three years. Jimmy graduated from the University of Michigan with a BA in mathematics. Jimmy has written three books. His latest book, Thank God for Bitcoin, is a must read for any new Bitcoiner. We talk faith, Bitcoin, and the future. This was a fantastic discussion. I hope you enjoy it. And now a word about our sponsors. Jeter Melder LLP is more than a law firm. It is a legal team. Justin and Michael have over 30 years of experience working with different clients on different legal issues from both sides of the docket, including business disputes, constitutional rights, employment agreements, employment discrimination, local counsel, and pay issues. Jeter Melder have advocated in federal and state courts in Arkansas, California, Illinois, New Mexico, and Texas. With a unique blend of clients from doctors, fellow attorneys, tradesmen, hourly workers, the unemployed, to small businesses and Fortune 500 companies, they all have one thing in common. They believe in Jeter Melder and Jeter Melder believes in them. Give them a call at 214-699-4758 or visit them at JeterMelder.com. That's J-E-T-E-R-M-E-L-D-E-R.com. Have Jeter Melder work for you. Hey, Jimmy. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today. I- I'm super excited uh, to have you. Um, I've, you know, read your work. I'm very familiar with, you know, I, I don't know anybody who's not familiar with who you are in the Bitcoin space. So uh, I really appreciate this time. Uh, as we were kind of talking before we started, Jimmy, I, I was kind of um, laying out my, you know, Christian, you know, th- beliefs and, and heritage and whatnot. And kind of want to talk about that with you as it relates to Bitcoin. Um, but j- just for maybe the the people who might be new in the audience, just kind of give a brief thumbnail sketch of who you are and what you've done, and uh, and then we'll just go from there. Yeah, so I'm Jimmy Song. I'm a Bitcoin developer, educator, and entrepreneur, and I've been in the Bitcoin space for the last ten years. Um, I I got into it uh, like reading a slash that article, and I. Uh, I think I was first hooked when I learned about the 21 million limit, and I haven't uh, ever really looked back. Uh, I, I started contributing to open source projects as a programmer um, starting in 2013. Uh, I've been a programmer all my life. Uh, you know, my first computer was when I was like nine years old. So, you know, like this, this is something that I've had an affinity to very early on. Um, but I, I started coding in open source projects in 2013 uh, related to Bitcoin. Um, I, I work for three different companies that, uh, as a Bitcoin programmer, um, and ultimately I started a programming blockchain course, uh, which is a two day course for programmers to learn all about the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, I still run them. Um, and you know, I've taught over 500 people. I've, uh, I think I have uh, student, former students at every major Bitcoin company around the world, mm-hmm. and uh, and you know I've taught them on five different continents. So it, it's been a pretty interesting journey, uh, you know, doing all of that. I I I, I guess also been known for uh, the content that I put out, um, and particularly in 2017 when I went from like 
300 Twitter followers to by the end of the year, I had like 90,000. So that that was like a big blow up, largely because I wrote articles explaining sort of what was going on from a technical perspective. Um, and there really wasn't anything like that at the time. So uh, a lot of people kind of appreciated it and followed me on Twitter. So um, as a result, I've become something of a content creator. I've written three books now, uh, Programming Bitcoin, which is a technical um you know, a uh, book about, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain and, uh, you know, the, the little Bitcoin book, which I wrote with seven other people in a book sprint. And it's basically a very simple primer on uh, on what Bitcoin is. And of course, thank God for Bitcoin, which is my newest book, which uh, which gives the moral case for Bitcoin from a Christian perspective. Yeah, so. we'll, yeah. we'll definitely be talking about that. That's, <laughs> that's really cool. You know, just the, the fact that uh, you've had such influence to have your mentees at different companies around the world. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I trained certain surgeons when I was at Walter Reed and, and having mm-hmm. that, it's, it's kind of a legacy effect. It's, it's a really, <laughs> it's really neat. It's a really neat thing to have. That's, that's really cool. Uh, Jimmy, what, uh, I, I kind of want to dive into the, the, the Christian aspects or the Christian themes behind Bitcoin. And, and I hate to, to really say that Bitcoin's Christian. It's not, it, it's something that was invented and created, um, by a brilliant man, but, uh, it's for in my mind, it's really hard to escape the the truths contained within Bitcoin and the parallels mm-hmm. among Christianity. And and I, I've I've written an essay about it. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and in fact, um, uh, someone um, has just mentioned that the writing really affected them from their beliefs and, and came uh, to believe in God because of it. So that's that's uh, a really neat thing. But. Um, when you put Bitcoin in kind of a Christian perspective or from your Christian mm-hmm. uh, framework of truth, how, how do you how do you think about those two together? Yeah. So um, when, when when I think about Bitcoin, it's it's really about money, um, right? Like an understanding money and the incentives that go around money, which is why, like, we actually don't mention the word Bitcoin in the first seven chapters. It's 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 really about the current system and all of the corruption around it and the bad incentives and moral hazards that exist as a result of that. Um, but when, when I think about Bitcoin, um, I, I think of it as sort of like a very well-designed system that uh, like sort of promotes transparency, promotes um you know verification and things of that nature because uh you know what one of the things that we know as christians is that everyone has it in their heart and they're they're you know we we all have this capability of doing evil and sort of like containing it is uh it is quite difficult oftentimes uh and the thing that sort of allows us to behave well oftentimes is just being seen right like being transparent being uh you know having uh, you know, the right incentives in place so that we don't uh, behave badly. Whenever you tend to place trust in a particular person, uh, they tend to abuse that trust in some way, shape or form. And that that's the moral hazard of the leadership and something God warned against uh, us, uh, the Israelites against with, uh, you know, wanting a king and so on is that you'd essentially have to place trust in this one person and this person is going to take advantage. And, and, and that for me um, is, it, 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 it's, a, 
it's an important part of the monetary system uh, that not a lot of people understand. So when when we're talking about Bitcoin, and I know you already just said, you know, it's hard to think of Bitcoin as Christian. I I, I think of it as moral, and I think it Absolutely, pleases yeah. God a lot more than the current system, which is very immoral. And um, in in the same way that like we would prefer a car that runs to one that you know like spews pollution everywhere and doesn't you know the mufflers jacked and you know there there's all sorts of things wrong with it and it's probably like ruining the road that is uh riding on um i would say that like you know bitcoin is better than fiat money for that reason and you've written you've actually written an article on the moral case for bitcoin uh, which i mm-hmm. put it in one of my essays but you know you kind of trying to put your head around bitcoin and and the perfection of it and this is a really i don't even know if you're gonna be able to answer this i I, Mm -hmm. I, i'm not sure i could but why do you think it took so long for us to either one have something like this or number two for god to reveal something like this yeah uh so the i'll answer the question sort of from a technical perspective we actually didn't think this was possible right like uh when you think of digital stuff and for most people when they think of digital stuff they think of it in two categories one is sort of like infinitely copyable stuff uh like mp3 files or whatever uh or a word document or something like that you can copy it with perfect fidelity every single time and uh it's essentially infinite uh the supply of it um and the other category of digital stuff is centrally controlled things that are scarce. Uh, so stuff like concert tickets, which is controlled by the Ticketmaster Corporation, they know the venue. So they give they issue a certain amount of tickets. And uh, whenever you enter the venue, they check against their central database to make sure that it's a legit ticket. So th- those are the only two categories that we thought existed before 2009 when Satoshi Nakamoto revealed uh, Bitcoin to the world. But before then, it was just sort of like, okay, is this like, those are the only two categories we're not even going to try to bother. And all the other attempts at sort of like an independent digital currency ended up being centralized. And, you know, there's a like a rich history of cypherpunks trying to come up with Mm -hmm. something and Mm -hmm. uh, libertarians as well. Uh, You know, there there was a project called Bitgold, uh, which was... Uh, basically, uh, a centralized gold repository, and you can you can trade it, and it was against the central database. Of course, the government shut it down very quickly, and you know they were accused of money laundering, and a few of their uh, founders ended up going to prison and, and, and things like that. And that, that that's kind of the problem is that you know you could try the centralized scarcity stuff, but it's extremely easy to uh, regulate away or to have um, all sorts of moral hazards and so on. Um, But the big breakthrough came when Satoshi Nakamoto revealed Bitcoin, which was, hey, you can have something that's actually scarce and decentralized. Um, And it it can, uh, you know, and that kind of tends to blow people's mind. To be honest, it still kind of blows my mind that that's Mm -hmm. possible because it is just so against, um, you know, our intuitions about what digital stuff is. But that, uh, but that's that's the main reason I think why Bitcoin really didn't come into play until 2009. Satoshi Nakamoto managed to put pieces together that uh, you know had existed for a while. So public key cryptography, I think, uh, was from the 70s. Uh, you know, proof of work was uh, you know paper by Adam back in like early 2000s. 
Um, and, you know, there, there were other um, attempts at digital money, uh, like Way Dies, B Money, and so on, like uh, all, all throughout, uh, you know, the decade before Satoshi Nakamoto finally put all the pieces together and released Bitcoin. Um, but yeah, it, it required uh, a computer science breakthrough, if you will, in order to get to the, um, the place where you could have decentralized digital scarcity. And um, you know, like as far as your the other part of the question, why did guy wait? That's that's something that I I don't think any of us can answer because who can know the mind of God? Yeah, that of course. Easily? Yeah. Of course. I always like to ask the question though, just to just uh-huh. to ask it. I mean, you know, if you look back at monetary policy over the last hundred years, and looking at the fateful decision to transition to fiat uh, and then fully fiat in in seventy uh, one, I mean. Do you think that had Keynesian economics not come along, that we would be better off today? Yeah, I think we would be much better off. Um, Unfortunately, Keynesian economics is uh, is sort of like a power play. Right. And the uh, what what put Keynesian economics on the map was really World War One, because. Uh, you know, what, what started as a small regional dispute between Serbian separatists and the air, uh, you know, murdering the heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, ended up becoming this giant global, you know, like completely destructive total war that we call World War One, um, in large part because of the resources that these governments could take through money printing. And Keynesian economics was essentially the basis by which they could claim that they were doing something beneficial uh, when in fact they were, of course, um, you know, just having, uh, you know, stealing from everybody else in their populace and causing all sorts of uh, inflation and so on. But that that whole um, economic theory was a justification for what governments already wanted to do, uh, which is, you know, uh, continue doing what they want. The people in power um, had a particular agenda and they wanted to tax the people, but they wanted to do it in a way where the populace couldn't really object. And expanding the monetary supply ends up being having this property of being unilateral. You don't need the permission of anybody else. And, you know, like you, you have the printing press right there. So you, you can just tax everybody without them really knowing about it or with that, without any legislation consent or transparency. So it ends up being uh, this enormously useful tool for those in power to, uh, you know, take resources from the rest of the populace. And it's uh, un- unfortunately become this, uh, you know, tool that that's been abused over and over again. And, uh, you know, had Keynesian economics not come along, um, I think that sort of stuff would have been resisted a lot more than it has. Unfortunately, you know, like um, Keynes became very popular, uh, you know, as a result of his theories and uh, all these governments essentially endorsing them. Um, I I liken them to kind of like false prophets in the Old Testament, like just telling the people in power what they want to hear. Uh, in order to get nice positions within the government itself. And uh, that's a situation we have today where pretty much every economist that's hired by the government, uh, whether they be, you know, part of the Federal Reserve or, the, or you know, part of the government proper, they, they're all Keynesian because, 
you know that that's the that that's going to let them spend more money and exert more control over their populace. I had I had Tomer Strolite on my first episode, and mm-hmm. and he mentioned that he studied economics when he was at university, and he said you know almost immediately he understood that economics was not a scam. He didn't use that word, but it it was pretty <laughs> it was pretty clear early on in his education that you know, this is a house of cards. And, you know, mm. I studied medicine. I, I don't know anything mm. about economics, but uh, it, it it's hard to understand why so many people can accept a lie, mm. you know, well, that, are, that are in those <laughs> positions, you know, in the government positions yeah. or I don't know. I mean, well, I mean, there's, there's that Upton Sinclair quote, right? Like it, it's very hard to get a man to understand something when his job depends on him specifically not understanding. Yes, yes. Um, and that, that, that's definitely true of Keynesian economics. And, and the thing is, we're, we're not taught any, you know, sort of like first principles, Austrian economics stuff. Uh, and this goes back, I think, more philosophically to, um, you know, epistemology, right? Like the theory of knowledge. Uh, and Keynesian economics is very much empiricist, which is, you know, trying to make it a science based on observation. But you can't really do that with economics because it, you can't separate variables. Like, yes, yes, you can do that in medicine, right? Like, you can you can give one uh, one set of people one drug and another set of people placebo, and you can figure out the effectiveness of the drug that way. Um, but with uh, with economics, it's like you you don't have separate populations where you can control all the other variables and so on. So you get into this weird situation where uh, you know Keynesian economics ends up becoming this um, you know like focus on aggregate numbers because that's the only thing that they can really measure. Uh, it's like GDP numbers or unemployment numbers or what have you. Uh, instead of actually operating out of first principles, which is what most other things do, right? Like, it, it, okay, what uh, we know that uh, this is true of math, uh, like these are the axioms that are true of geometry and we're going to derive everything else from that. Um, you, you can do that with economics, right? Like people prefer things now over later, uh, you know, given the same quantity uh, and, uh, and and many other things that you, you can sort of like derive based on like just common sense axiomatic things. And that that's what Austrian economics is. But uh, to a larger point, uh, Keynesian economics is based on this empiricism, which comes from, I think, a denial of God. Uh, and w- once you... Um, deny uh and it's a very sort of like materialist philosophy right a denial of the metaphysical the spiritual just anything outside of this material world and that that's ultimately what it's based on and this would have sounded crazy to anybody uh even like 250 years ago uh but with the advent of the enlightenment nietzsche and uh, and uh, Marx and uh, and all of these uh, types of people that basically deny God, you you end up in a situation where it's like, well, okay, there are no first principles. All all we can do is observe. And it, uh, in a materialist world, uh, Keynesian economics is much more attractive, and that that's where you kind of end up in instead of one where. You know, if people do believe in God, then, okay, you can't go with an empiricist uh, sort of, you know, only observations count kind of uh, mentality because there are like greater principles, especially in human behavior. Um, And what's worse is that 
if you take it to an extreme, what, what you end up doing is trying to change human behavior. And this is where you get stuff like socialism and communism, where you end up killing people because they're not behaving the way you want them to. Uh, and ultimately, that it, it's like extremely immoral. And you, you end up with like 200 million dead people like we did in the 20th century uh, uh, as a result of government killing them, um, yeah. what, what libertarians call democide. And we're seeing, I mean, we're seeing this kind of unfold right now with liberal democracies in Australia in particular. I actually mm -hmm. wrote about this subject in one of my essays called Escape from Reason, but uh, mm -hmm. I, I totally agree. It was the, the middle of the 19th century where we, we lost this concept of absolute truth and it, it absolutely led to open the door for Keynesian economics. But mm -hmm. I, I think from a, from a Christian's perspective uh, and Christendom, did Christians fail to stop the encroachment of Keynesian economics? Did where where were the Christians to say, "Hey, this is not right. We can't do this." Yeah, and this is where um, I think uh, a lot of um, you know Christians went wrong was uh, late nineteenth century. Uh, so you know, I, I think um, you know the the campaign for prohibition, for example, and. Uh, you know, for the Catholic Church, it was like, uh, you know, Catholic social teaching that came into more prominence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it was this idea that you should use authority to make things right for people. Right. Um, and instead of sort of like personal virtue of charity and things of that nature, it was let's get the government to take care of all of this stuff and, you know, ban things that are evil or, or, or whatever. And uh, and I, I think that's that's when it started to all go wrong, because it was trying to sort of control people and control human behavior, uh, even if it was for, you know, what what was, uh, you know, good intentions or whatever. It, it ended up like absolutely backfiring. Uh, we, we know what happened with prohibition at, at the time, like it, you were. And if you were a pastor during that time in the era of, uh, you know, trying to get the. Uh, you know, prohibition amendment passed and so on. If you didn't support it, they thought you were a heathen, right? Like mm -hmm. it, 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 it actually costs a lot for any pastors to go against uh, the, this obvious encroachment of liberty. So um, it, it ended that that whole progressive era of, you know, um, you know, putting in the income tax, direct election of senators and, you know, prohibition, obviously it, it was an attempt to, sort of, uh, uh, you know, do this uh, uh, government by mob rule almost. Um, and like the, the Christian conception was, well, we can be the mob and we can sort of impose, uh, you know, a certain code of behavior on the rest of the populace. Uh, and that, that's, I think, where ultimately that led to, uh, you know, embracing of whatever would give them more authority and power. Um, unfortunately, that eventually led to, you know, some really authoritarian steps, especially by Woodrow Wilson and FDR. Uh, those two presidents in particular were particularly bad in sort of taking this authority and essentially like, you know, expanding executive authority, like uh, significantly to impose kind of their will on everybody. Um, so, it, it, yeah, I mean, Christians should have been there sort of like saying, okay, well, God, God is uh, the authority and, you know, you still can't have mob rule. Like it, it turned democracy into 
what the founders were fearful of, which was Bob Rule, right? Like mm-hmm. and they, they had all, the, all of these checks and balances, including, you know, like having state legislatures, you know, vote in senators, right? Like that, that was supposed to be the state's house. That was supposed to be the voice of the states. And that was how you were supposed to balance federal and state power by having a Senate that represented the actual states instead of a Senate that is basically like House 2.0 or something like that. Um, it, 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 it changed a lot of things and, uh, and made it possible for Keynesian uh, economics and really monetary authoritarianism to flourish in the next century. And uh, do you think Bitcoin's going to help with this? Is there any way to pry that authority away from the central government? From the federal yeah, government. Uh, so the main power that the central government has uh, is the power of the printing press. And this is an enormous power. Uh, governments tend to grow anyway in any society uh, just because there's more incentive to grow if they can. Um, but typically, historically, they, uh, they were limited in their growth because they had to tax the populace in order to grow it. So anytime there was a war, um, they, they would have to go and tax people in order to fund the war. And of course, wars were unpopular for that reason. Um, and taxes are always unpopular. That's, it's one of the biggest reasons for revolution anywhere and, 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 and at any time in history. Um, but, uh, but what, uh, you know, fiat money and uh, central bank-backed fiat money does is it confuses the issue significantly. So it's not at all clear that the government is responsible or that we are being taxed. So it, it is this sort of like self-taxation, and that leads us to a weird place. Uh, and that that's kind of what we have today, where uh, you you have this monetary authoritarianism. So to get back to your question, if we have Bitcoin, what happens? Well, Bitcoin is sort of like a release valve. Uh, and the the way governments t- typically enforce uh, their monopoly, their monetary monopoly is through legal tender laws. Um, you, you have to take the US dollar, right? Like for goods and services. Um, what Bitcoin does is it, it, it provides a store of value that's sort of like separate from the current system. And as the monetary expansion um, gets worse and worse, and we're definitely seeing that right now, in, in the past year alone, I think we expanded by something like 40%. Um, that's an enormous expansion of the monetary supply. If that's happening, uh, you know, eventually it will trickle down into other stuff. And we have this release valve in Bitcoin. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people are noticing um, that it is a very safe place. Well, once Bitcoin uh, starts t- taking over and you do have this really good store of value, then you're taking the power of money printing away from the state. Um, at some point, I think the U.S. dollar will hyperinflate or do something, um, and it's going to be very hard for them to keep up with Bitcoin. <clears throat> and people will prefer Bitcoin to the dollar, um, and I think that part is inevitable because Bitcoin is harder money. Well, what, what's going to happen then? Um, well, now, now the federal government can't have a budget of six trillion and have a tax revenue of four trillion. Like you can't do that anymore. You try to sell treasuries and 
you know, like there will be some foreign central banks that might buy some, maybe some private equity investors that, that might buy some, but it's not going to be $2 trillion. And what, what's always happened before was the central bank would step in and buy the extra $2 trillion. They could, but that's going to start expanding it really fast because the budget of six trillion is just not going to be enough. It's going to be ten trillion with a revenue of five trillion, something like that, and that gap's going to get bigger and bigger. And this is what happens in hyperinflating economies. Uh, so this happened, for example, in the Weimar Republic, where the budget gap just grew and grew, and the government just didn't care. They just kept spending and so on, until you know, like, like, and the market at, at that point just uh, wants hard currency. They want foreign currencies or something else. Um, I suspect it'll be Bitcoin at that time. Uh, do you and- think we'll? Do you think we'll actually see a Weimar Republic? Uh, play out. Uh, possibly. It, it's hard to say because, um, you know, we do have sort of like Bitcoin as a backstop and we've never really had something this available before in any sort of like hyperinflation scenario. Um, and I expect it to be more available by the time that scenario comes. But, uh, but you know, once you do that, now now governments have to like stay within budget. So it'll, it'll, you know the the state i think has to shrink because they're always spending beyond their means and essentially stealing from everybody else in order to do so so you know in that case i think government changes i think uh, priorities change and we roll back some of the um you know sort of authoritarian tendencies of the progressive era that's uh that's been sort of the albatross around the collective neck of the united states for the past 130 years you see that happening within the current political structure, the two party, you know, Republican, Democrat, you actually see rollback of of that progressive overreach. Yeah, I don't know. Um, that's a good question. I, like, It's possible that we get a third party or something like that. Or, you know, I like the thing is, like in a fiat system, um, politic, everything is hyper politicized. Uh, and the reason is this. Uh, they control the resources essentially like the government and uh, the the moral question always is well i have this problem and it used to be okay well now i have to fix it because i am responsible for my own life there's sort of like this ethic of rugged individualism and and so on which was prevalent right up until the start of the progressive era um Instead, it becomes okay. So, why aren't you doing something about it, right? And the the uh, and I'm sure you're familiar with this. Being a doctor, is okay. Well, I'm sick. What are you going to do about it? Right? Like it becomes sort of like if you can do something, why aren't you doing something about it? And it becomes immoral to not do something about it because, in a sense, you have all of the resources. Now, those resources are stolen from others, so it's unethical in a different way. Uh, but they they have that ability, which is why we get stuff like universal health care and we get you know college tuition credits and food stamps and all, all of this welfare state kind of stuff. Because in a sense, it, like the government can and therefore the government will. Um, the, and, and that becomes sort of like the picture of government under a fiat standard because they they have access to not just the resources that they collect through explicit taxes, but everyone else's resources through inflation. Um, so the question then becomes, okay, like, how, how does that roll back? Um well, if you take away the honey uh, the the honeypot of uh, money printing, 
then it it doesn't it, not everything becomes so political because like the government actually has to pick and choose which programs it runs. It, it can't just do everything, which is what they essentially do now. Um, they 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 have to prioritize and make choices and pay attention to prices. Um, and that would be amazing because there are enormous inefficiencies within government right now. Um, you know, I mean, everyone talks about like the $500 hammer that the Navy paid for in like 1980, but they're, they're far worse things that have been going on for many, many years. So that, that level of efficiency, I think, will make government more efficient and smaller because they, they will become more price sensitive than they are now. Um, you know, the story I like to tell is about healthcare.gov. I'm sure you're familiar with that, uh, being a doctor and so on. Uh, but uh, but the, the story basically is that uh, they hired uh, a firm out of Chicago. This was, of course, under the Obama yes, administration yes. to uh, to make this uh, the healthcare.gov website. And Congress appropriated something like seven hundred million dollars to build a website. And, you know, it had all the all of these requirements and everything else. And of course, it goes live and it can't even handle 50 users a day. Yeah. Complete disaster. Yeah. All right. So Todd Park, CTO of the U.S. at the time, who uh, was uh, not coincidentally uh, the CEO of Athena Health, where I used to work. So I, I, I know him pretty well. He uh, he he sent in sort of as, OK, can you just take a look at this thing? What, what What's going on? And he has a background as a consultant. So he goes in, he finds out, OK, everything is crap. There is uh, there, like the whole system, like nobody really understands it. Goes out uh, to Silicon Valley, hires some like uh, some seriously good programmer saying, your country needs you. Can you come help us? Brings them back, uh, hires a bunch of people. They go in and look at it. Uh, you know, by the way, that, that project took eight, 18 months and $700 million. Right? Yeah. He looks at it. And he's like, okay, like, what do you need? Like, just help, uh, help us help you. Like, what, what resources do you need? How are you going to get this back on? And of course, they, uh, they, they look at it and they're like, okay, like, we need to rebuild this thing, uh, and we could, we could get it to work, um, and, and, and stuff, but we're going to need to rebuild the whole thing. And they're like, okay, how much do you need? And Congress at that time was ready to appropriate like two hundred million dollars because they were so embarrassed at this very public failing that they were willing to spend as much money as necessary to cover up for their flaws. And, they're, uh, and they, they assessed it and they said, $10 million. How long is it going to take? Nine weeks. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it costs 70 times less. Yeah, yeah. And like 20 times faster like just uh, you know doing it with competent people instead you had like all of these incompetent people that yeah. spent, spent 700 million dollars and 18 months to get this thing off the ground uh and congress was willing to throw another couple hundred million dollars in there to fix the whole thing yeah. like this is not a price sensitive government right and th th this is what happens when you have fiat money available um, I, I think stuff like that goes away and you 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 get way more efficient stuff. Do you do you see a rise in federalism or states' rights to kind of be a part of this pulling away from the central authority? I mean, I you look at Texas and Florida, mm -hmm. Texas in particular, well, I guess Florida as well, just saying, you know, um, don't tell us what to do, we're gonna do what we wanna do. And they mm -hmm. can do that for so long, but you know, you've got uh, you know, as a physician, um, 
healthcare could not be delivered in any community without Medicare or Medicaid or Medicaid's uh, state funds, but healthcare could not be delivered in any community community without Medicare. So you might get into a situation where Texas says, you know, look, we, we're going to go on our own. And the government just says, OK, well, we're just not going to pay you Medicare funds to take care of your your community. So it, there, this might get to, you know, playing chicken with each other, trying to wrestle control from the federal government. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, not even uh, like that's kind of understating the case. I, I think what will eventually happen is you're going to have smaller city states. And I, I think that's sort of the end game. And if you think about it, you know, that that was sort of like the norm for a very long time to have smaller countries and smaller city states and sort of more local government. That 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 was much more the norm. Um, up until, you know, starting with World War One, lot, lot, lots of, uh, you know, much larger countries that wanted to control larger territories because they had more access to more resources um, through fiat money printing and so on. Um, so, you know, I mean, there, there are separatist movements all over the world right now. Um, whether or not they'll succeed, um, I, I don't know. But they do have a nice weapon in the form of Bitcoin, because one of the biggest questions in any sort of like separatist movement is what currency are you going to use? Because you either have to have your uh, a new central bank, which is very difficult to set up, and then you have to be subject to the IMF and everything else, um, which makes it quite difficult uh, uh, to establish a new state without some international cooperation. Uh, but, you know, you could kind of go off on your own if you're using Bitcoin under a Bitcoin standard, because then it's just sort of like, OK. And it's very difficult to sort of quell those kinds of yes. separatist movements without like some insane amounts of violence. And I, I don't think most uh, countries have the appetite to do something like that, where you're sort of like suppressing your own people um, uh, to that degree. Uh, so, you know, with that as sort of like a threat. Um, I, I can I, I see state rights becoming more of a thing, uh, you know, because there is sort of like federal encroachment and, uh, you know, a large part of the control that they exert is through monetary means, uh, whether through banking laws or whatever. Uh, you know, like marijuana has been legal in Colorado for a long time, but none of none of the, you know, uh, uh, hashish dispensaries or whatever can get bank accounts because the federal government says, okay, if you service them, we're going to cut off your FDIC insurance or whatever. And it's, it's kind of like, there aren't really state rights there, but um, you know, the financial pressure lessens if uh, the dollar becomes less prominent. Um, And I think that, that, you know, Bitcoin definitely can sort of change the dynamics significantly there in favor of smaller communities. It's time to play Who Wants to Be a Satoshi Millionaire? Jimmy Song currently teaches at which university? A, the University of Michigan. B, Washington University. C, the University of Texas, D, Baylor University. Do you see? Do you see pressure on that front in Texas, in particular, that uh, Texas might be a first mover in becoming a Bitcoin only or, you know, predominant uh, Bitcoin state? Do you do you hear rumblings of that, or 
Uh, and since you're in Austin, I mean, what's the political talk around Bitcoin? Is it really discussed? And and I mean, it's got to be discussed at some point in some realms. Yeah, uh, so it's definitely being discussed, and uh, Governor Abbott has pretty much invited like Bitcoin miners to operate uh, within Texas, and uh, that sort of regulatory certainty has given a lot of mining companies like uh, incentive to move here and you know create jobs and so on. But does uh, he see that? Aspect. Is he seeing that more as a business opportunity because there's a business opportunity, or is he seeing the the value in Bitcoin itself? Yeah, I, I don't know if he sees necessarily the value in Bitcoin yet. Um, I, I, I can certainly tell you that we're trying and there, there's a lot of sort of like uh, educating going on with a lot of uh, state representatives and so on, just sort of outlining, hey, th- this is what Bitcoin is. And here is uh, here are some ways in which you can help the state. Um, and, that, that you know, th- those efforts are certainly going forward and um and I, I think it will be seen uh, soon enough. Uh, but yeah, I, I think the first step is, you know, hey, these are some good businesses to operate and it's it's not a bad thing to be doing them. Um, Jimmy, let's let's transition a little bit. We're kind of talking mm-hmm. about states' rights, but I, I kind of want to get your thoughts on what's going on in El Salvador. Mm-hmm. Um, the... Obviously, what they're doing is uh, historical mm. on a scale from like one to 10, 10 being like they're going to blow it out of the park and be successful. You know, mm. where do you how do you how how comfortable do you feel that they're going to be able to pull this off? And what kind of effect is that going to have on the Bitcoin ecosystem? Yeah, so it's already successful to a large degree. Um, the reason why President Bukele like started um, uh, you know, like looking into Bitcoin was because of a place called Bitcoin Beach. And mm-hmm. this is apparently like a surfer's paradise or something. But, uh, you know, all the people there have been using the Lightning Network for Bitcoin transactions for a while now. Um, and the vendors don't need to have a bank account. They can be their own bank. And uh, it's been very good for that economy, having sort of access to banking services on their own and and so on. Um, and interestingly enough, a lot of uh, churches there have been pretty instrumental in getting the uptake within Bitcoin Beach. So it, it, it's... Uh, it's an interesting uh, sort of like social thing that's happening. Now, is is it going to spread through all of El Salvador? I hope so. But, uh, you know, it, it's hard for me to gauge because I'm not there on the ground. And I, I don't know, like, what they're, what what that government is specifically going to do to make everything work. Um, and they might do something stupid uh, I, to some degree. Like, I, I wish they didn't declare Bitcoin legal tender. Mm. Uh, I wish they would have brought down the dollar from legal tender status to, you know, just sort of like one of many currencies instead. And that way, like, it would have put all of the currencies on a level playing field. But I understand why they had to do it, because otherwise, um, you know, like, uh, like Bitcoin would be sort of a second class citizen to the dollar or something to that effect. Um, but yeah, it, it's uh, the execution and so on. Um, is entirely dependent on the people of El Salvador and the government of El Salvador. Um, I, I suspect that it'll go at least fairly decently, um, but you know there might be some bumps on the road, and there'll definitely be some learnings about how to scale um, the Lightning Network within a particular community like that. Uh, but yeah, I, I see this as a very good thing for El Salvador, which you know, which which is cool. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of churches, you know, we talked a little bit about my passion with missions. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've been down to Guatemala, you know, six times and with my family. And um, I talked with uh, Mario Agulas of Ibex Mercado uh, this week, mm-hmm. and they're planning to kind of model Bitcoin Beach there in Guatemala. Um, do you think that there's a role for Bitcoin within the church? Do you think there's a role for Bitcoin within missions? And if so, you know, how how could it be utilized in a way that, you know, we've not used something like this before? Yeah. Uh, so the most obvious uh, use case for Bitcoin is for remittances. And uh, if, if you ha- know missionaries anywhere in the world, you know, getting them money there is actually quite an endeavor, uh, especially in closed countries and so on. It's it's not at all obvious how to do it. And oftentimes it costs a lot of money and so on. Uh, so for remittances, it, it kind of makes things a lot easier. You can just sort of send the money as they need it. They don't need to make uh, trips back and forth uh, to to do whatever, uh, to um, you know do all of the fundraising and then converting the money or whatever. Uh, so it, it, it makes that a lot easier. So that that's at least one um, you know immediate win. I think that a lot of uh, people in missions can benefit from. Uh, but a deeper one is as savings. So the biblical model. Uh, uh, you know, for, um, you know, any sort of like business making or uh, entrepreneurship has always been, you know, you sow and then reap that that's been the biblical model. Um, and you're, you're supposed to work for something and then get the reward at the end. Um, the current, uh, monetary system sort of incentivizes the opposite. It is getting into uh, getting what you want now in exchange for debt and then being enslaved to that debt for a while. Um, now, a lot of people in a lot of countries, that that's unfortunately the pattern that they fall into is that they get into debt and then they um, they are enslaved for some period of time. And there there's all sorts of, uh, you know, evil going on in the world in the form of slavery uh, that that where, you know, debt is used as sort of like the justification for keeping these people in slavery. Um, and the reason why they have to go into that is because their currency tends to inflate away and they they, they don't have a means to save. And they're, uh, it, it's very difficult for them um, oftentimes because they don't have good banking services or, or access to that. So at a deeper level, I think Bitcoin introduces a new tool um, that allows people to save. Um, even in the United States, it's now possible to actually save up money in Bitcoin and start your own business, um, which like if you're keeping it in dollars, it's going to be very difficult because you're, you know, it's uh, inflating away at six, seven percent every year. So, you know, like by the time you save up enough money, it's not enough money. So you have to save even more money and, you know, it, it takes much longer. But with uh, with something like Bitcoin as a savings technology, um, it becomes a lot easier. Uh, so I, I would say that that is. Um, sort of a way to help people sort of bootstrap um, and help them help themselves. Because oftentimes what happens in a lot of these countries is that they are kind of over-regulated, especially from a financial standpoint. And you can't get banking services unless you already have this or that or the other. And they privilege certain people and the governments are powerful because they control the currency. Um, by introducing Bitcoin into an economy like that, you uh, you make it a lot easier for them to uh, you know get goods and services internationally, um, to be able to trade with each other, and not requiring banking services 
in order to operate a business. And th- those are all very good things. And uh, eventually, I think that uh, allows for more opportunities for people to do productive work, uh, to work with our hands, to use some biblical language, um, and uh, allow people to you know, uh, thrive better and take care of their bodily needs as well as spiritual. Do you think that there's a role for church funding or missions funding with Bitcoin in kind of a, you know, in perpetuity, in perpetuity, uh, mm-hmm. indefinitely because, you know, people can see the growth in Bitcoin. Now they set aside mm-hmm. the, the money in Bitcoin now. And, you know, if they set aside enough, you know, it could be something that funds the church for a hundred years. I mean, if you look at what Charity Water is doing right now, they've got a Bitcoin uh, funded, uh, I guess, endowment is, but and they're not going to cash the money for five years after the next cycling uh, having. Um, and, you know, they're just going to sit on a, a lot of money. Um, mm-hmm. I just find that intriguing as a concept in churches and missions, potentially. Yeah, and that that used to be the case for with, with gold. It, like you, you had deflation against gold with every other good and product. So um, you know that that sort of dynamic was normal for saving. Uh, it, it's uh, the current system is just really weird in that if you save, you know your your money is kind of being melted away from you, right? Michael Saylor calls it like a melting ice cube, mm-hmm. um, and that that that's his uh, like that's doesn't incentivize saving whatsoever. But if you do have something like that where it's appreciating against other goods, then you could buy more stuff later. Well, okay, now now it makes sense to save, and it makes sense to have better habits and uh, you know have low time preference or what. Christians call prudence, right? Like that virtue of like thinking ahead and uh, thinking about the future. Um, those, those are all very good things. Um, unfortunately, like the current system encourages consumption now because it's cheaper now um, than it will be later. Uh, and that's what a lot of churches and missions organizations essentially fall into. It's, uh, you know, whenever they need money, they'll go out and do fundraising and then like just sort of spend it right away. But, uh, you know, something um, that a lot of churches have, it's interesting if you sort of like see the pattern of like older churches and so on, is that they're essentially living off of the savings from like the previous generation, right? Like they have endowments from people that died like 150 years ago. um, And they're they're using that sort of like in perpetuity. They're they're draining like sort of God's treasury, essentially, uh, in, in order to... Uh, keep going. Oftentimes, they're like a very different denomination than as he started. So they might have been like mm. Methodist or something, and now they're like Unitarian or something like that. Um, and that, and and th- this happens oftentimes because uh, you know there there is this savings uh, that that's available to be exploited. But if every church did that and like were you know more concerned with uh, you know establishing the truth and so on. Uh, yeah, like it wouldn't be this giant drain of God's resources towards stuff that isn't really that productive, like keeping uh, an old church like that's 200 years old with like 20 members, most of whom are over 70, like alive. Like that, that doesn't make sense, right? Like that's that's not a good use of God's resources. Um, instead, going towards other stuff, uh, you know, through saving and so on. Um I, I think would be a wonderful thing. And, you know, you know, I, I look at a lot of churches and, 
yeah, it's in general just uh, the there there is no culture of efficiency around money. Really, it's uh, it's more about fundraising and then spending, yeah. uh, which I think is not the right model necessarily. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think it's definitely affected our witness and and our mentality within the church, and and not not that that we wanted it to, but it just kind of infiltrated the fiat mindsets infiltrated. Um, Jimmy, um, as we kind of close um, the the session together, and I, I really appreciate your time. I I guess I want to ask you kind of a fundamentally philosophical question. Actually, I, I want to ask one question about thank God for Bitcoin, but fundamentally, um, you know, do you think that because of the um, absolute truths within Bitcoin, do you think that um, atheistic or agnostic Bitcoin, do you think that creates any sort of tension for them that they must explore what this means? I mean, I I wrote another article about just this religious conversion that people seem to have sometimes when they come across Bitcoin. Um, Are you seeing that? Do Do you think that Bitcoin creates some sort of tension um yeah so maybe comment on that yeah yeah absolutely and um and the thing about atheism is that most atheists are sort of like um in denial a little bit about their materialist worldview uh mm-hmm. you know they they sort of deny not just the spiritual but the entire metaphysical realm yes, and, yes. and like and if you, if you do that then nothing makes sense right like what what is a thought what is the number five what is mm-hmm. the ideal gas law like they, mm-hmm. these are all metaphysical concepts that you can't explain in any way so uh the thing that bitcoin does that i've noticed is that it it, it kind of takes you to the metaphysical because in, in a sense bitcoin is metaphysical money it's uh, it, it doesn't have a physical form it exists on uh, on this abstract ledger that we call the blockchain and it it, it exists there in a very real way and if you're a materialist, you kind of have to resolve that, right? Like, because it, it exists, but in an abstract way, like, in what sense does it exist? And you, uh, and that 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 produces some tension. It also like gets them to focus a lot more on the long term. So I, I've seen a lot of people that uh, that at least were nominally atheists um, and they're they're thinking about the future. So they're thinking, for example, about starting a family, right? And it's like, okay, well, if I am going to start a family, uh, what am I gonna teach my kids? Like what values am I gonna try to impart to them? And then they quickly realize, okay, well, if I am if I stay atheist, then, you know, I'm not gonna be t- like giving them very good values or good justifications, at least for the values that I might want to impart to them. Um, and they start looking into Christianity for that reason, because of the legacy that they want to leave and the and the values that they want to impart. Uh, so there there are multiple directions in which sort of Bitcoin points people to Christ, I guess. Uh, and it's uh, it's a fascinating thing because every conference I go to, I, I get at least like three or four people that come up to me and say, you know what, like. Um, you know, I, I, either you know, I, I I discovered Bitcoin and I've been thinking about Christianity, or I used to be a Christian that I wasn't, and I discovered Bitcoin, and um, you know, I've been uh, reading your book or something like that, and I'm I, I'm starting to come back into it again, and and, and things of that nature. Uh, I mean, I, I I hear that like literally all the time, and there is something that I would say like uh, I would I would describe as 
uh, little T truth leading to big T truth. Yes. Uh, when, when you learn about truth in any form, it, it really does sort of like point to God in some way, shape or form. And it's very hard to deny. And the truth of the matter is we've been lied to about money, like by a lot of people uh, about how it works or what its effects are and how moral it is. Um, and once once you learn about Bitcoin, you realize they've been lying and you go, OK, what else have they been lying that's about? <laughs> and then you get to, you know, stuff like carnivory, right? Like that's about nutrition or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, uh, OK, what, what about like? you know, the afterlife or yeah. my spiritual destiny or metaphysics or whatever. Like yeah. these are some deep questions that a lot of Bitcoiners wrestle with. So I, I think they ultimately do point to Christ and we just sort of need to shepherd them, I guess, as, as Christians in the Bitcoin community. Yeah. that Well said. I, I think that, um, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the fiat lie is bigger than the than the Santa Claus lie. So uh, uh-huh. for sure, for sure, uh, Jimmy, kind of to describe the the genesis of thank God for Bitcoin. You have kind of a motley crew. I've talked to Jordan mm-hmm. Bush on the show. Um, you know, you you de- you have a lot of co authors, and mm-hmm. you know, what was the intent of the book? And do you think that there was something missing that you need to have a sequel? I mean, what what uh, <laughs> what would be the next step? Yeah. Uh, so the the book came about because, uh, you know, I, I met a bunch of Christians on my like sort of Bitcoin conference circuit or whatever. Um, and usually, uh, you know, it, it like I, I'm pretty open about it and I've learned to be open about it because, um, you know, I, I didn't want to be ashamed of who I was and things like that. So, you know, what, one of the first conferences at where I was invited to speak, I, I somebody was asking me, uh, you know, uh, are, do you have a family or whatever? I'm like, yes. And how many kids do you have? I have six kids. It's like, how the heck do you have any time to do all the stuff that you're doing? And I'm like, well, okay. I have four things that I concentrate on. And if it doesn't fall into one of these four buckets, I just don't do it. And uh, so, all right, what are, what are the four things? Well, it's my faith, it's my family, it's my finances, and it's my fitness. If it's not one of those four things, then I just don't do it. I, I, I stop watching TV for that reason. I stop watch, uh, reading the news for that reason because it doesn't fall into any of these four categories. And so, like, sort of picking up on that, one of the people that was listening to me when I, when I was giving that little speech was like, hey, you know, I just want you to know I'm a, uh, I, I'm, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm a person of faith as well. And we talked about it. And um, he ended up being one of my co authors for the book, Derek Walchak. And he, he's uh, one of the first people that I met um, that did that. And at the time, he had, um, he had five kids, two of them adopted. And he and his wife were praying about, hmm. uh, you know, adopting another one. And he found out that I had six kids and he's like, okay, well, maybe God's trying to tell me something. And he decided and did adopt a, another kid from China. So they, they have six kids now. So, uh, you know, they're wonderful family. Um, but that, that's just like one story, right? Then all, all of these other people that I met, uh, on that journey, um, whether directly or indirectly by being introduced, uh, through one of these other people, um, we, we had something like a Bible study, uh, slash book club, uh, where we wanted to learn a little, uh, you know, like see, you know, what the Bible said about money. Uh, after we did that, 
the people that were in it kind of expressed interest in learning more of the economic aspect. And there were two books that I really liked that sort of approached it from a Christian perspective. One was Ethics of Money Production by Guido von Holzman and uh, Honest Money by Gary North. And we uh, basically studied both books together uh, as a group. Um, there were other people involved as well. Um, and afterwards, uh, we were very happy with having studied it, uh, but we didn't like the ending of either book. And mm. to be fair, both books were written pre-Bitcoin. And basically, the conclusion of each book was, okay, now that you know all of the corruptions of the fiat monetary system and how we got here, um, it's time to go back to the gold standard. Mm. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to get a political action committee together and inform enough people so that we can overturn uh, you know, the 1971 decree and go back to a gold standard. I'm like... And all of us read that Reddit were like, okay, there's no way this is ever happening. Like to, to do something like that is, is a Herculean undertaking that uh, if it happens at all, is going to happen like 50 years from now. And they're like, but Bitcoin exists and it's way better than either of those. So uh, what we ended up doing was saying, okay, let's try to write our own book. Let's, uh, let's try to, uh, you know, uh, take the message of these two books uh, condense it a little bit and make the argument for why Bitcoin is going to be better uh, than this alternative of trying to you know get get the world back on a gold standard. Um, and that's that's essentially how we came out with uh, thank God for Bitcoin. Now you asked the other question, which was what's what's next? Uh, what do you, what uh, you know? Is there a sequel or whatever? I um, we had a very diverse group of Christians, uh, you know, like we, uh, you know, like Gabe comes from like a Pentecostal background. Um, you know, I, I come from a Presbyterian background and there comes from a Baptist background and George comes from, uh, you know, uh, an Orthodox, uh, Coptic Orthodox background. Julia's from a Russian Orthodox background and Lyle is a progressive Christian. So like there, there's a lot, there's a huge range mm -hmm. within that. Uh, so one of the things that we weren't necessarily able to do because largely because it was hard to get agreement, uh, was to do a little more exegesis on, uh, specific Bible verses and stuff. And, uh, you know, like I, we, we read through like the Amazon reviews and stuff. And that seems to be sort of like the criticism that kind of hits, hits hard for me. Cause I, I kind of know it's true that, mm. you know, I wish they, uh, went into biblical exegesis a little more. And I kind of wanted to, but it wasn't within the scope for the book because we really wanted to kind of introduce Bitcoin. So one of the things that we want to do eventually is get into a deep exegesis. And, uh, you know, I mean, Jor Jordan is, um, you know, like he, he has a seminary degree and he's a missionary in Uruguay and stuff like that. So um, that's something that he wants to work on. At some point, that's a project that I'd be interested in picking back up again and uh, like giving sort of like a, a serious exegetical biblical case for Bitcoin, uh, which I think can be done. But, uh, you know, it, it's going to require a lot deeper study than maybe what we did, because really the Thank God for Bitcoin book is more of an economic and moral analysis of what fiat money does. Uh, and less about Bitcoin. And, you know, we, we do show, hey, here's Bitcoin and here's why it's good. Uh, but like the exegesis is stealing is wrong, right? Like it's like, okay, that's, that doesn't require too much, mm -hmm. you know, in-depth analysis or context understanding. It's just, okay, you know, stealing is wrong. 
and we made the argument that this is stealing. Okay, so you should stop stealing. That that I mean that that that's the extent of the exegesis that we've done. Uh, I mean, maybe we did a little bit more. Uh, I, I think there was one verse in there that I got in there with uh, about uh, you know uh, working with your hands and um, and not being a busybody. I, I, I maybe a little bit there, uh, but uh, you know a deeper exegesis of. Uh, scripture and making a deeper case for it, I think, is something that I, w- I, I am interested in. I, 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 but it's going to require probably a lot more research than we did for uh, for this particular book because you know I, we we knew the economics pretty well already. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Well, Jimmy, this has been a great discussion. Uh, do you have any other uh, parting thoughts? Uh, maybe something along these lines that we've been discussing that you want to um, say, and then uh, for the audience, what's a, what's a good way to connect with you um, moving forward? Yeah. So the parting thought for me is that there, there is sort of like this, um, not just cultural, but I would say like a spiritual divide uh, currently uh, that uh, Bitcoin has somehow come into the foray. Uh, and it, it's, um, I want to describe it as sort of like uh, being held hostage by pity or something like that. Uh, there, there, there's this sort of like political demand for the government to take care of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this has especially come in um, in the past uh, year and a half or so where you know, the government has to do everything because is a quote unquote compassionate thing to do or something or, or something like that. And, um, you know, if I, am a big fan of CS Lewis and one of, one of the, um, the quotes, uh, or the big stories out of, uh, the book, the great divorce is, uh, you know, towards the end, there's this, uh, guy that is just extremely pitiful. Right. And he's like sort of demanding pity from other people. And, um, and that reminded me of the current political climate. There, there's uh, sort of like uh, the the way C.S. Lewis describes it in the book is, you know, we tend to think that our our theology is wrong if we think that hell can veto heaven, right? Like there, there's mm. uh, hell is holding heaven hostage or something to that effect. Um, you know, like you can choose joy, um, and in a way, like fiat money is like. Um, holding us hostage right to to this weird mentality of uh you know needing to pity everybody and uh you know if x is unhappy then we need to make them happy that it's our duty that that's sort of the weird morality that that's out there uh that's dominant in political discourse um i think where bitcoin comes in is that it's it's saying no that's not it <laughs> like you can be independent of this and we don't ha- uh, have to take on your misery uh because you are insistent on being miserable instead we will choose joy and we will choose to you know um live our lives without your misery sort of like hanging over us um and that that's sort of like a deeper cultural more spiritual divide that i think we should be not just aware of but work actively towards, um, you know, being free from the shackles of sort of this pitiable um, political demand of those that insist on being miserable. 
yeah. if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, very well said. Uh, you know, the, the, the more Christian analogy, uh, Bitcoin's a choice, uh, just like Jesus is a choice. He's not going to force mm-hmm. himself on anybody. So that's very well said. And Jimmy, where could people, what, what's the best way for people to connect with you and kind of stay in tune with what, what you're doing? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Jimmy Song. Um, you can also subscribe to my newsletter, jimmysong.substack.com. It's a technical newsletter, but I have a bunch of things on economics and stuff in there as well. Um, that uh, comes out every Monday, and I do a read-through on my YouTube channel and stuff. I also have a podcast, Bitcoin Fixes This, where I have lots of different guests, and I talk about something other than Bitcoin and bring Bitcoin into it if it makes sense. So, uh, you know, uh, my books are available on Amazon. You can look them up on programmingbitcoin.com. That's my website uh, and the title of my first book. Um, so... Yeah, those are the ways you can connect with me. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you would leave a review, that would be fantastic as well. Peace. A little more about our Satoshi Millionaire game. The plan is to have a series of questions spread over a number of shows. At the conclusion of the series of questions, there will be an opportunity to DM the Twitter handle at Mission21M with the answers. The first person to DM with the correct answers will be the recipient of the 1 million Satoshis. The only way to receive them is via a Lightning Wallet, so make sure you have one that is set up. I hope you have fun playing. Thanks. Thanks.